and it, it sounds terrible to say because I ended up going 52nd overall. I had a had a nice payday, but that was the worst. That was probably the worst day of my life until I got picked. It was just you're you're replaying your whole career in your head. Your everything you did as an amateur, all the the work, the suffering, the travel, just watching it kind of just just slip away every pick. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho, and today we're talking to Chris Betts, former minor league catcher and second-round pick of the Rays in the 2015 draft out of the California high school ranks. I love talking to catchers, getting the perspective from behind the dish. I might be biased. I just find catchers to be as insightful as players as we can have on this show. Uh, catchers and pitchers, really. Anyone involved in that exchange, I'm a huge fan of. But a lot of great insight here from Chris. Guy who had to fight injuries every step of the way in his career, even before he got drafted. We talked dealing with injuries during the draft process and almost every step of his minor league career. What you can improve on while rehabbing and what you can't. We also talk the importance of an agent and, and having good representation, as that's what Chris has transitioned into in his post-playing career. So we talk about how an agent can help the draft process during the career, things like that, and what Chris is, is wanting to bring from his experience, his career, into his post-playing career. Uh, we also talk about what it's like on minor league baseball all-star weekend, what that schedule is like, how it compares to the big league schedule in a sense, and what it's like winning a home run derby. I think Chris is the first guest we've had who has won an all-star weekend home run derby, so we talk a little bit about that bunch of other great stuff. Great having Chris on the show. Really appreciate him taking the time. Uh, episodes of Feed Out of the Farm Shop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast read for all amateur baseball and prospect news. It's the last episode of the show before opening day. BA has you covered there. We've got fantasy coverage. College baseball still going, of course. A lot of good stuff at BA. Always a good time to be a subscriber. And with that, Let's talk to Chris Betts. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was the second-round pick of the Rays in the 2015 draft, former minor league backstop Chris Betts. Chris, thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I want to dive right in. Um, when you were coming up as an amateur, when did you realize that you were first going to have a chance at the next level, whether that be pro ball or Division One baseball? Uh, I think for me, it was my, my freshman year of high school. Um, and I was lucky enough to have guys like Chase DeYoung and JP Crawford on the field with me. We played against JP and I played with Chase. Um, and so they had all the attention in the world on them. And um, I had a pretty good freshman year with, uh, with the varsity team. And, and that's kind of when the attention started for me, when I started realizing uh, it might be a, a real thing for me. And how did you originally get stuck behind the plate? It's it's a different story for a lot of guys. Some guys are are deemed, you know, hey, you profile here, and they they go there kind of later in their career. Some of the kids have had gear on since like they were seven. Yeah, so I was one of the ones who had gear on early. Um, my dad caught in college, and I just you know like little kid just wanted to be like dad. But I always joked that my my appetite at a young age made me a catcher well before my athletic ability did. So it was, it was a combination of both. I, I wasn't the most athletic young kid. And then also I, for some reason, just really wanted to, even though there wasn't much action back there. What was your, I mean, I, I guess as when you, you started getting older and you started having a bat that could play elsewhere. Um, Cause it, in like in your, your draft scouting reports and things like that, it said, you're a guy who could possibly move to a corner. You know, the, the bat could play at a corner, which is a, a pretty stout compliment for a bat. What, what kept you behind the dish in high school? I just, I think at the end of the day, I really enjoyed it. Um, I liked everything that came with it. Um, I liked being in control of the game and it just, I always felt really locked in when I was catching as opposed to elsewhere. The game was just so much slower. Um, and I didn't really enjoy that slow pace. Uh, but when I started, when I started to really hit well and, and come through the amateur ranks and that started to become a thing, I was actually pretty insistent on trying to prove that I could stay back there with the bat and defense. With that, in, in one of your, your BA draft scouting reports, it mentioned that you were able to work with, with Kurt Suzuki in the offseason. What can you, you pick up from a guy like that when you're just a young kind of toolsy high school guy versus a guy who's got, you know, at, at that point, even, you know, five, 10 years of, of professional baseball experience. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I took away from Kurt was his work ethic, obviously. Um, seeing what it seeing what it took at that level while I was still in high school was a was eye-opening for me and it gave me a chance to adapt to it a lot earlier than most kids realize it. Um, but then also just with how down to earth Kurt was himself, just understanding that, you know, the game, the game isn't that it's not that much different at that level compared to, you know, even the minor leagues or college or, or any of that. Kurt was very down to earth and um, just painted things in a really clear light for me. Um, and, and, you know, he did some things for me that I'm forever grateful for. You know, he was waking up at six 30 in the morning in his off season. So I could come train at his house with him before I had to go to school that day. So the work ethic, what it took, um, what was expected of you when you got up there, um, kind of the whole nine yards. Kurt was very, very, very influential for me in those years. You mentioned the work ethic. We think of catching already as uh, taking a big physical toll. You're you know, squatting for nine innings, 162 games a year if you're in the big leagues. What else goes – how much outside of baseball goes it how – much, how much work just to stick at, stick at catcher and be a quality catcher versus, say, first base or third base? I, it's, it's a lot because especially now, um, aside from the physical aspect, with all the data that we use for game planning and pro ball and, and everything that goes into it, you have, there's a, there's a whole new mental side to it that I think is, is different than even when I got in a pro ball. Um, and it just, it takes a lot of work on your body. It takes a lot of work on doing your homework, um, when you're preparing for games and your pitchers and whatnot. Um, it's, it's quite the demand to be serviceable back there, even let alone, let alone good or above average. When you get later into high school, or at least you start hearing from colleges, you are a guy who is from, you know, from a California high school. Why, why Tennessee? Why, why Rocky? That's, that's not a short flight from California. Yeah. So believe it or not, there was actually a lot of familiarity um, at Tennessee for me and my family. Um, Bill Moziello was, uh, was one of the assistants at Tennessee at the time. And my dad played for Bill in, at Oklahoma in, uh, 96 and 97. So we knew the Moziello's forever. And something that I wanted to do was go play in the SEC. So it was a, it was a total no brainer for me and my family when, when they reached out and, uh, made the offer to go out there just because we knew, we knew Bergeron, we knew Serrano already previously from their time in California and, and our families go way back with Bill, Bill Moziel and his. So it was actually a lot more uh, homey of a feeling than you would imagine with me being from California. Was anyone else in the running? Like, were there any visits you took where you're like, hey, it, might, it might actually be this? Not really. I, I think the only one we, re we seriously looked at was Tennessee. Um, and again, a big part of it was just the familiarity. And, and with me being that far away from home, if I were to have ended up going to school, um, that was pretty important to me where if I'm going to go to the other side of the country and play in the SEC, I wanted it to be around people that I already liked and I was already comfortable with um, kind of shorten the learning curve or shorten the time that it would take to be comfortable out there. As you get into your, your senior season in the spring of 2015, you're, I, you know, getting a lot of that draft attention. Also, I assume dealing with some arm soreness. What is the, yeah. What is the just the the playing anxiety like when you're you have this this huge potential decision on the line, potentially huge life changing payday, and you're one of one of your your main tools is not at one hundred percent. Yeah, so that's actually I, I think a lot of people just assume that um, that I knew that my elbow was you know blown out and in shambles, and you know some people, especially after the draft, were saying that you know, we knew the whole time, but in, in all reality, it was one throw that something happened and we went to go get our MRI and we got it looked at and we submitted, you know, we submitted our medicals like we, you know, uh, we were required to, or we did to whoever asked. And uh, it was very inconclusive. It was such a, I mean, you hear it all the time in the media of people go get two, three, four opinions on elbows before they make a choice on how to handle it. And all the opinions we had before the draft were, kind of inconclusive and wanted us to take the rehab route first and and the damage wasn't glaring. So when I blew it out on April 15th and went to the doctors that next six to eight weeks before the draft was like you said, it was a, it was a mental grind for sure. Not really knowing what was wrong in there. We were getting a bunch of looks at it, um, getting different opinions and kind of seeing, not that it slipped away, but seeing everything in regards to the draft 
change very, very quickly was, uh, it was a lot to deal with at the time. How many different things did you hear at that period? Because in the draft, they're, they're obviously like your, your top, your top 10 guys, you just kind of know, you kind of know what, you know, what you're slotted for, likely what you're going to get paid, who you're going to, with some exceptions. When you get even in that back end of the first round to, especially if you're a high school guy with a lot of leverage all the way to, you know, the, the top 10 rounds in, in the, in the, uh, the slotting system, the slotting era, like th- there's just a lot of variance. What are, and you're 18 years old and I deter, I maintain no 18 year old really knows anything about money. How, how much are you hearing? Like what, what was the highest you heard? What was the lowest you heard? Like, and how do you wrap your brain around that when you're also like, trying to graduate high school, trying to play out your last, you know, your last bit of high school baseball. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good way to put it. The, the best way to describe it, the gaps that we were hearing um, from pre-injury to post-injury was, you know, without putting a number on it was definitely a millions of dollars in a gap between, you know, what at one time could have been to what at another time could have been from the highest estimation to the lowest estimation. Um, and I, I would say we ended up kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, and yeah, man, like you said, after that happened, you know, going to school is a challenge. You're, you know, your friends are all going to school, getting ready to go to college and you're sitting there, you know, everything you plan for, for the last two years is not slipping away, but it's totally thrown on its head. Um, you know, so, so there was some stressful times for sure. But, um, you know, my, my now fiance, who was my girlfriend at the time, her family, my family, uh, my representation, you know, I, I really believe they were the ones who, who got me through it because, like you said, no 18-year-old is really built to deal with all of that. Talking about representation, that is that is what you're doing now in your, your post-playing career. What, what sage advice or just things that stick out that you remember from that period kind of calmed your anxiety or, kept, you know, kept you level-headed or at least gave you kind of a north star of this is how this process will play out for better or worse? Yeah, I, I think the some of the best advice I got was that it, it's a it's just a business at, at any level, whether it's an 18 year old or whether it's a 30 year old in free agency, it's just a business. But the thing that kind of kept me sane was just the transparency through it all. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't any smoke being blown. There wasn't any um, stretching of the truth. It, it was very transparent of, of how poorly it could go or how good it could go, even in the uncertain times of, of you know, my elbow being hurt but the 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 biggest part for me was that I was still um you know Danny Danny my my advisor at the time was still treating me you know gently as a as a 17 18 year old kid and and really you know turning off the uh the professional taking off his professional hat at times to just make sure mentally I was okay he was always checking in with my family seeing how I was because you know as you said it, it wasn't uh it wasn't an easy go at it those those two months were were really something. So him kind of being there for me and being transparent, um, you know, I felt like I was getting treated like a, like a grown adult at the time. He was talking to me just like I was, you know, one of the businessmen that he regularly deals with. So that kind of kept me level-headed knowing I was getting uh, solid information and, you know, I was aware of how poorly it could have gone and I was aware of how good it could have gone. So I was kind of prepared for it all. When you got to draft day, was Tennessee still in play at all? Like, did you have a floor of, I am not, did you have a floor that might not get hit as far as bonus? Um, I would say going into draft day, everything was in play. I mean, our options were, and, and not from a negotiating standpoint either, our options were as open as they could have gotten. Um, and we were taking everything into account um, from, you know, Tennessee to whoever picks us to numbers. Um you know, after the injury or after the second half of my senior season, we kind of, you know, just were looking for the best opportunity possible. There wasn't necessarily a dollar amount we were chasing. And and I was confident that, you know, Danny could go and get me the best number he could. And, and it was going to be up to me and my family to decide if it was best. But we definitely didn't have a hard number going into the draft. How long does the wait from one to 52 feel? Oh, my goodness, man. It was that that was probably... And it, it sounds terrible to say because I ended up going 52nd overall. I had a had a nice payday, um, but that was the worst. That was probably the worst day of my life until I got picked. It was just you're you're replaying your whole career in your head. Your everything you did as an amateur, all the the work, the suffering, the travel, um, and 
just watching it kind of just just slip away every pick and, and every team's call in. Um, yeah, I definitely walked to my room a couple times with all my family and friends over to to go be alone and let some steam out. Did you get any calls where you because a lot of the time the call comes in, it's, hey, if we take you here, will you sign for this? And you have to make a gut decision. Do I will I sign for this? Will should I hold out for more from someone else potentially? And will will that all slip away? Did you have any tough calls come in that you had to give the thumbs up, thumbs down to? Yeah, I would say we I would say we had, you know, anywhere between four, five, six of those, which when you put in the grand scheme of, you know, there's 52 picks and, and I wasn't going in the top 15 picks. There's a, that's a small window to take all those calls and go through that emotional roller coaster of the, um, those scenarios playing out, like you said. So when I, when I signed and I got to the complex and everything, and I found out, you know, other guys aren't having those calls, they're having one or two of those. And thinking back to having five or six was, it was definitely an emotional roller coaster that day. I'm sure. What what made you and the Rays the fit? What how did how did that come together? Was it did they called said, "Hey, we've got this at at 52. Will you sign for that?" Or did you know did you did you think before the draft this was one of the teams that might grab you, or was it completely random? Uh, no, we we had had some good conversations with Tampa and their scouts in the area and their scouting department. Uh, and us had had some some really good sit downs, so it wasn't a complete surprise, but it was definitely more the first part of what you said. Of they called, they had a number, we took it. Um, they took me, and we kind of went to work. Um, you know, obviously the story goes, I end up going to get my physical, and the contrast MRI comes back, and that kind of starts me down the road of injuries. But from the draft pick side, yeah, it was it was really just them calling. Great number, great opportunity, and we jumped on it. So you you sign for for a little over one point four million. Can any eighteen year old be prepared for that kind of money? Just just for the, the what the number what the number means, not the actual what actually gets in your bank account. I I I think uh, that's a great question. I think that uh, I think you can. Um, I don't I don't think I don't think eighteen year olds realize how little life changing money is. You know. Um, what you can buy a house with, what you can, what you can set yourself up for success with. Um, but I, I think I was prepared for it, but I wasn't expecting, you know, how much it would actually change my life. And what is that roadmap when, when you do end up, cause obviously you don't end up with, you know, 1.4 in your bank account, but when you end up with a sizable amount, what is, and I mean, and this is something I'm sure you have conversations with kids now, what is the roadmap to success financially when like in, in, you know, calling a spade a spade, like you're no longer playing baseball. You didn't make it to the major leagues. A lot of the times for, for draft guys, this is their last payday. What is the roadmap to success? Especially when a lot of the time this bonus works as a salary advance um, yeah. because minor league wages are so low. Yeah. Um, obviously I think the book says to say, you know, higher financial do your due diligence, but, in my opinion, in my experience, it's all about like having your own financial literacy and understanding as much as you can personally how it works and what your money's doing and where it's at. And, uh, you know, not only who's controlling it, but what it's in, what's making money, what's not making money. So you can hopefully have a seat at the table to help determine, you know, your financial future and the decisions you make. You're, you know, you're not at, you're not at the will of someone sitting at a computer that you see two, three times a year, the, the best thing I could say is just have the literacy to be able to help make those decisions or have some educated conversations on them uh, to, to understand where your money's at and what it's doing and what comes with it and taxes, and, you know, the whole nine yards. Were you permitted to buy anything dumb? Oh, did I? No, I, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I, for and I think it's because I was just stuck in Florida rehabbing my elbow. I wanted to buy jet skis so bad, but I never, <laughs> I think, thank goodness. I never got close to pulling the trigger. Um, you almost went full. That's about powers. as close as I got. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which, which looking back on it was great for my career that I did not have a jet ski in, in Florida. Um, but yeah, I, I really didn't, didn't make any stupid purchases. Um, you know, maybe the inflatable pool here and there for the apartment complex that didn't have one, but not nothing, nothing like you hear stories about. 
I mean, in the, the kind of apartments that you guys had to stay at, and, the, and anything you can to bring a little luxury into that apartment complex is is uh, I, I think that's a, that's a wise purchase. You, you mentioned that um, you obviously hurt your elbow. You had had Tommy John surgery. Spent you know right after you signed, you're spending time rehabbing, and and that kind of ended up being a, a theme of your career. How much can you know we? We talk about oh, guy going to come back in the best shape of his life, or there, there's things you can gain. How much can you really develop when you're when you're injured? So I, it, it's up to the player. It, it depends on the injury. It depends on what you can do. Um, for me, at the end of my career, I became this. I don't want to say defensive specialist, but definitely glove first. The last, especially the last year of my career, and. Um, I got a lot better at catching during my time of all those injuries. And the only, the two words I can say is Paul Hoover, the catching coordinator at the time um, in Tampa, whenever he would come to town, you know, he would come by the facility in the morning and work with the rookie ball guys. And, and he would pull double duty and then go to the Florida state league games at night. And every time Hoover came to town, um, you know, we were sitting behind a machine. As soon as my right arm was stable enough where, the trainers would let me, you know, get out there and go do some normal things. Hoove and I were locked in behind the machine, just trying to make me not only more serviceable, but just as above average or as good of a catcher as I could be. And I, I everything I ended up being as a catcher defensively, I think I owe to Paul Hoover. So I, I got a lot better, but that's also because I had a, I had a coach who was willing to deal with this cranky 19 year old who was upset about, being in rehab and you know he just worked through it with me and man we got we got some really good work in those years that I was hurt and I feel like when from when say I graduated in high school in 2009 to I guess now the concept of what we look at with framing has changed how guys move when they catch the ball has changed it used to be kind of be very silent kind of catch it where it is and and make a little move and now we've got it it seems to me like a little more action but you see when guys are quieter than not how how did you come up framing the ball versus by the time you got out of out of playing did you see that gradual shift yeah I so my first year was you know Hooves' mindset was no pre-pitch be very still present it where it's thrown dominate the baseball kind of what you're talking about and and every single year that I was with with Tampa to when I finished with the Dodgers it was there was just a little bit more added you know and I, I always felt like Paul was always one year ahead of everyone. We, we were moving the ball what seemed like one spring training before everyone else was. We were doing pre-pitches one spring training before everyone else was. Um, so it was cool to be in baseball during that progression from very old school mindset. You would never even think of having a knee down while you're catching to that's the way we do it now. So, yeah, I definitely got both ends of the spectrum on that. And then in your uh, in your BA draft report, it mentioned that as you know your your last year in high school, you had you're a bigger dude. You had to kind of clean up your body. You had oh, to yeah. uh, you know she yeah sh- shed some weight, kind of firm up, add some muscle. When you are injured, rehabbing, or when you're just in a minor league season, when you're staying in hotels and you're you know taking long bus rides, and what's open at 11 p.m. at the end of a road game, how what challenges go into maintaining what you you did in high school and keeping yourself in shape, especially when you are a guy who likely has the ability to put on weight in one form or another, if, if things get too off the rails. Yeah. It, it, that was a huge challenge for me. I, I didn't revert all the way back to how out of shape I was, you know, a couple years before the draft, but I definitely softened up. Um, I, I think that's, some of the things that an 18 year old, 19 year old isn't prepared for is living on your own and making good decisions. And not to say that I was making terrible decisions. You know, I wasn't eating Taco Bell every night, but when, when it's not, when things aren't mandatory and you're on your own and and a lot of your successes and your failures are on you, um, you make a lot of very small decisions that end up affecting the the near future that you're not even aware of really. So that first rehab I I made, I didn't want to say I made some mistakes, but I definitely let my body go a little bit and I learned from it. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's a, a challenge is an understatement. Are there staying in shape tips, especially during the minor league season? Are there things like substitutions you can make? Like if you're laying out a roadmap for a client, a high school signee, 
what are are there like um life hacks i guess like to make it easier to stay in peak physical condition even in a very atypical routine that is playing in the minor leagues yeah so i mean some of the things that i resorted to in my future rehabs was you know if we we're on the road or or in rehab and, and the city didn't have much much for food um i would i would just order chipotle catering to the house and i would kind of meal prep via using chipotle because what what 20 year old wants to go spend eight hours at the field and then come home and cook grilled chicken brown rice and vegetables at home um so that's one and then the the last rehab i had when i broke my finger in 2021 i was just trying to be at the field as much as possible whether it was hanging around the rookie ball guys or uh catching on the machine when i couldn't hit yet you know just trying to kill time at the field and stay active and and do things that were at least mildly conducive to staying in shape or staying in, in uh you know keeping the skill set as high as possible while I was rehabbing you you didn't play at all in 2015 the year you were drafted you didn't play a whole lot in 2016 because of another injury by the time you get out to um and it, it, you didn't really play a lot in 2017 either by the time you you get out to your to, to make a, a full season debut do you still feel like a prospect? Do you still feel like a guy who was a second rounder and got a seven-figure signing bonus? Like in, in your mind, how did you view yourself after all that time away? Honestly, after after the second elbow surgery in uh, 2017, um, I when I got healthy and I I went to Bowling Green, you know, for a little bit, I felt the opposite. I, I felt, you know, I knew I was way behind the eight ball. I, I was very, very, very aware of how um, kind of tough my situation was and how long I'd been been away from the game. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I really didn't feel that prospect status you're talking about. Not, not from anything that the team did with me or the love they showed. They were great. Just, you know, kind of where I knew my game was and, and watching guys who got in at the same time and how much they had developed since. Um, you know, I was just very, very aware of how not, not great my situation was at the time. So yeah, when I when I made it to full season or when I just made it out of the complex and I was playing at an affiliate, it was it was uh it was a lot. It was hard. How, what was the biggest catch up there? Was it the ABs? Was it actually squatting for nine innings on back to back to back nights? Where you know where did you feel the most the the rust? Definitely at the plate. Um, because the, the way that I like to describe it is in, you know, my senior high school, we're not facing any slouches. You know, we're facing Patrick Sandoval, Colby Allard, Ash Russell in the summer, but like, you know, the whole nine yards and, and you know, you're facing competition that's, that's elite and, and you're comfortable in the box and you're having success. And then I kind of show up after those two and a half, two and a half years of not really playing at all. And man, I, I just felt like it, it just disappeared. I felt like it just, left me um so yeah it was it was hard because I was putting in the work and I was doing all the right things and I was logging my time in the cage and getting my swings but when seven o'clock rolled around I was very aware that I was a totally different player at that point did you call pitches in high school I did yeah so you had some familiar what is take me through like pitch calling 101 especially at the professional level um, when you're facing where you're seeing these hitters for three, four days in a row at a time, but they're seeing, especially, you know, they're seeing your relievers, you've got these starters, like, how do you, what is the science behind that? Do you work off more what a guy is good at? Do you try to focus on what a hitter is bad at? How do you blend that? It's, it's, it's changed a lot since 2015 when I came in. That's, that's another thing too, that, you know, the game planning and the game calling, I would argue has changed just as much as how we physically play the position. Um, for, you know, for example, last year, if I'm getting ready for a start with Bobby Miller, um, I, I already know his stuff in and out front and back from the advanced metrics of it, you know, the break and, and what the pitches do and where they're best suited to play, whether it's in the zone or the usages of them. Um, and then, you know, you kind of tap into, you start to look at the hitters before they get into town and, you know, you look at their ISO, you look at their miss, where they chase, um, do they have a lot of in zone whiff? Um, can, can, can you get them to chase on certain pitches or are they not worth wasting pitches on, uh, where do they do their damage? I mean, it's a, it's definitely a science. like you said, it's, it's just taking it all into account and, 
trying to just create the best, um, I guess, slightly vague roadmap for each hitter that you can you can hopefully lean on for most of the series. And then you have you have your certain guys out there who you know you can pitch to their strengths at all times. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's a lot. You got to know the hitters inside and out, and you have to know the pitcher like the back of your hand, in my opinion, to, to have a good game plan. Is it a better feeling to call the perfect pitch? Like don't have to don't even have to move your glove guy swings through it or just to get a solid knock. I won't say a home run, but like a solid knock. See at the end of my career, calling calling good games was the, just the most rewarding part because I kind of, I knew the writing was on the wall and I had turned into this, you know, defensive first catcher. Um, and that was where most of my value came from was just whether it was calling a game or handling a staff. So at the end of my career, I would say for sure, calling a really good game and, and having a good game plan and watching it be successful. I want to look at the kind of the anatomy of your 2019. Your 2019 was the only year you you got to play about more than 100 games. You were in you were in Bowling Green. I uh, played 110 games, and I, I you look at a we baseball very obviously stat oriented, but like you look at the end of the year and you you take a, a stat line as as a whole. Your stat line says you you know you hit a lot of home you hit 19 home runs in 110 games. You walked a lot. Um, you struck out a lot. You go into this looking as a stat line in its entirety, but in that that year, that first kind of full steady year that you had, how did you see that play out? What did it you know? Did it seem like a year where you were hitting a lot of home runs and striking out and walking a lot, or did were there ebbs and flows? Like how did you view that first year in its entirety? Yeah, it's it's hard because at the end of it, obviously I knew I was the, just the ultimate true outcome player that season with the walks, tons of walks, tons of strikeouts good bit of homers. Um, but I think if you look a little closer, it's, I was just streaky, man. I would have some good months where I walked more than I struck out, or I, I at least was close to one for one. And then there were some months where all I was doing on the positive side was walking. Um, that, that was a year for me where I, uh, I, I don't have the, I did not as a player have the mental stability to be a 200 strikeout and 30 home run guy. So even though I did some good things, I was really unhappy with it. And I was hoping to build on it. Um, I was hoping to catch that power in a bottle and, and hold on to it and develop the rest of my game. Um, but you know, COVID injury in 2021, it happens, but yeah, that was a, that was an interesting year. Cause I did some really good things and I did a lot of really bad things too that year. You say the mental stability of, of being the 200 strikeout 30 home run guy. Is that when you say that, do you mean like, being able to live live with that like live with those 200 strikeouts like live with quote unquote failure 200 times if you get that that 30 home run payoff yeah exactly i i know there's a world where that player's in the big leagues and that player makes money but um just for kind of the hitter or the player that i wanted to be and and the value i wanted to provide um man, it's not fun going not only 10 days without a homer, but in those 10 days striking out 20 times. Um, and it just, you know, when you're hot, it's really fun. But the, the lows of that type of season are catastrophically low. So if you're you're representing a player, your representation with you at that time, if, you know, if you have to come to a kid and say, hey, man, your path to the big leagues is like you've got to be – uh, a Joey Gallo type, because that's who I think of when I think yep. of a guy who's going to whiff a lot and hit a ton of dingers. You've got to be that, and you're going to have to live with a ton of of low point. How do you sell someone on that? I it's hard to because I, I feel like that you know that shouldn't that shouldn't necessarily be the goal is to be that type of player. It's great if you are and you make a living, and you know the next generation lives off of you know those types that type of career that you had as a player. Um, but I, I think there's always a there's always a, uh, an avenue to use that as motivation, right? You know, whether, whether it's, Hey man, you, you can go out there and still hit 30 homers, but what can we do within our game to, to lower the strikeout or move the ball forward more, you know, not necessarily even raise the batting average, just have more competitive at bats more consistently. I think that's, that's what it's all about is the guys who are striking up 200 times, they might be producing. And, and again, they're valuable to the game and how we evaluate it now, but, there's 200 at bats where they didn't, they didn't contribute. So if we could just find a way to, to limit those in, in, in the way of having more quality at bats and hitting the ball hard more consistently, um, I think that's the goal. So just trying to potentially use that as a motivation of, you know, 
look at what you could be if, if you fix these not minute details, but usually the things that lead to those types of seasons, it doesn't take a, a career changing adjustment to fix it. Sometimes you might not have made it to the big leagues, but you did win a home run derby and <laughs> there, there, I, I, I would, I would guess that there are more people who have been big leaguers than have won professional home run derbies. That is, that, no that's a good way to look at that. it. Yeah. yeah I never thought about that's that. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So Midwest League All-Star. What is All-Star Weekend like? What, what's the itinerary for a minor league All-Star game? That that weekend was uh, – South Bend did the most unbelievable job of putting that weekend on. At at one point, he didn't show up, but Pitbull was scheduled to perform at that All-Star game. and Mr. Worldwide coming to South Bend. Coming to South Bend, and he canceled. But, I mean, the Ying Yang Twins opened up. And you're, you graduated high school in 2009, so I'm sure you appreciate oh. that. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a big deal for me. <laughs> full, full stage on the field. I mean, it was, it was the most absurd. Uh, my, the fact that it was an A-ball all-star game, it still blows my mind. They did such a great job. And, um, but, yeah, so you just you show up. We got lucky the, where we ended the first half um, in Lansing was on the way back home to Bowling or South Bend was on the way back home to Bowling Green. So the bus just pulled over and, you know, dropped the other all-stars on that team off at the team hotel. And we had a little gala, if I remember correctly. Uh, my dad and my fiance flew out and then the home run derby was the next night. And then the all-star game. And yeah, it was a great weekend. I, that was probably the most fun weekend of my career. Was that derby uh, big league style like it is now timed or did you do the the outs and homers thing? Yeah, it was timed. I was... I was exhausted. I, I underestimated how tiring that was. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. So you, you get to, so who, you, I think, what was it? You're facing off against Alec Thomas. Yeah. Yep. Did you go, did you go first in the last round or second? Like, Cause it seems like the person who goes second almost always wins. If you know, if you know the number. Yeah. I forgot how they determined it, but I did go second. Um, and the first, the first round was just okay. Um, I'm friends with them now, so I can say it, but, but Nico Holsizer choked the first round away. I think I only hit like four or five and I thought my night was over. I was pretty checked out. And then the only time I've ever seen Nico not hit five home runs during batting practice happened to be that night. So I got him and then, uh, a buddy of mine from back home, Jake Brote got him and then I matched up with Alec at the last round. So he kind of, he kind of did you a favor in the first round choking away. You didn't actually have to exert as much. You didn't hit as many dingers. Yeah, I, I, I figured out that uh, I was swinging a little too hard that first round. I was absolutely exhausting myself. And there's a uh, BHJJ Cooper. He was he was there and he tweeted about it. And he, he tweeted about your, your teammate, Wander Franco, celebrating all of your home runs. He was, what, 17, 18 that season? Yeah, I mean, that's the most... That's the most special baseball player I ever shared a field with. It was pretty absurd what he was doing that year. What What's the wildest thing you've seen Wander do? So the, the, the craziest thing I ever seen him do, I was with, uh, it was me and uh, one of the pitchers and this guy can hit balls further than anyone in batting practice. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and he just has a, an absurd batting practice and, you know, me and I think it was Caleb Sampin go up to him, ask him like, dude, like, why aren't you hitting homers in the game? What, how are you hitting balls this far right now? But you're just hitting singles. And he goes, me, you know, below 300, take my hits over 300 homers doubles. And uh, so sure enough, he gets a hit his first at batter, his first two at bats and they make a pitching change as he's coming up, uh, coming up to the plate for his third. And I was hitting behind him and he grabs me and he points at the scoreboard and says, see like over 300 now swing hard. And this dude, like he didn't hit a home run or anything, but he actually, you know, goes and hits a double or hits a deep fly ball, but just, the fact that he's sitting there choosing when and how he's going to let it go and he's not wrong. Um, and he can sit there and decide if he wants to just hit a single against you or if he wants to try and hit it over the fence and, and generally good outcomes come out of both is probably the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, and I've never seen another player be able to do anything remotely close to calling their shot. And he's up there doing it at the highest level. From both sides of the plate. Um, yeah, pretty, it's pretty decent, decent baseball player. My my favorite at bats of his is when he would get to three, two counts. And even if it's a ball, he's just choosing to foul pitches off. It's 
it's unbelievable. So it, it's a special talent for sure. He's well-deserved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 2019 wraps, you go into 2020, it's kind of a make or break season for you. You're going to be 23 years old. Um, you know, you, you'd be out of college had you gone at that point. And yep. obviously pandemic, tough, you know, <laughs> tough sledding for everyone, but especially minor leaguers, especially guys who don't, um, you know, get the opportunity to go to the alternate training site. When when you're evaluating yourself throughout that year, again, it's a, it's how how did you how do you even try to develop? And it, it's not only developing yourself, but you needed that year to prove something to the organization. And that's and that opportunity is no longer there. How do you even evaluate what your career is like by the time you get to spring training 2021? Yeah, that's uh for me, I'm you know, I got humbled right out of the gates, like you said, with the Tommy John and missing the two and a half years. So, I mean, I'm just realistic. I, when I didn't get invited to the alternate site, um, and I just ended up sitting at home until instructional league in the late fall of 2020, I don't want to say the writing was on the wall, but I, I knew the, uh, most likely the route at that point that where it was going. Cause I knew what another year without the at-bats was going to do. Um, I knew that, you know, we were going to be pretty loaded wherever I went in 21 with the team. And I knew that that was going to be my last year of my, my UPC before I was a free agent. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't think my career was over at that point, but I knew that it was pretty much the the steepest uphill battle I was going to have was from, from post COVID on. Um, so I was pretty aware of, you know, how, how bad the, the, the hand of cards I was holding was. One note during the pandemic, uh, I saw you and Jacob Nix built a mound. Are you a handy guy? Typically? Absolutely not. No. Um, Jake, Jake is very, very handy. Um, we were using my tools in my house, and I, I think I was just comedic relief for Jake because some of the things that I was messing up were, were just inexcusable. So, so we had a good time, but I'm definitely not the handiest guy in the world. I mean, if you if you have the tools in the house, though, I think that you know that's just as valuable as being able to build a mound. You need a place to throw. You need something to build a mound with. Yeah, we uh, we had just bought our house, uh, my fiance and I, and Jake and I had sixty feet and eight inches of space to work with in my backyard. And Jake was trying to throw, and I was trying to catch. So we decided to build it. And yeah, within about a month of me being home from the season, my neighbors got a taste of just how chaotic. Uh, my house can get Jake was throwing full blown bullpens in my backyard for a couple of weeks. Uh, any, any errant pitches into the neighbor's yard? Uh, one that actually didn't, it didn't break anything, but that was the point where we realized we needed to move it to Jake's Jake's mom's house where we had a little bit more space. Yeah. That, that's, you don't want to be that neighbor. No. Yeah. He almost threw 95 through our neighbor's kitchen window. It, it hit the side of the house or it hit my back wall or something. And I think we just called it right there, put it in the truck and took it over to his place. That's the move. That's the yeah. Move. So you get, you get into that 2021 season. You kind of mentioned the writings on the wall. You also get hurt again. When do you start looking at at outside interests or start really thinking about life after baseball? Um, with your contract, you 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 had college built in if you wanted it. Um, but you know, you're also you're 24. You're engaged. You've you you know it, it's hard to go back or to think about going back to that structure. How do you start? kind of developing the roadmap for what life might look like if I'm no longer playing? So the end of 21, um, I, I was considering, I wasn't considering quitting, but I knew that, that I had to put up big numbers and have a good year to get a solid free agent deal. Uh, getting protected in Tampa wasn't, you know, I realized that wasn't very plausible. Um, and then I didn't really start considering outside, you know, anything outside of baseball, playing baseball until probably spring training of 2022, where I knew that more than likely something was going to kind of come my way, or I knew that it was very real that that could be the nail in the coffin that year. So that's when I kind of started to just, I wouldn't say look, but be more, more aware of the possibility of it. Did you think that there was a path for you? Like, did you think that that the, somewhere inside you, there was a big leaguer that they, like there was an adjustment. There was a, a thing you could do. There was some sort of pathway. If you, if say, if someone gave you, or if your body would let you play 130 games somewhere that, that, that the path was there. Yeah. I, I think, I think it was always there. Um, I think that I absolutely could have stuck it out and, and potentially found a home to catch 
you know, kind of maybe catch my way to the big leagues or wait my turn and, and get a stroke of luck. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't so desperate to, uh, to call myself a big leaguer, to tell my kids I was a big leaguer that I wanted to hang around, you know, and, and kind of for lack of a better word, just continue beating my head against the wall for another couple of years for, you know, one, one good day or one good year in the big leagues and, and still kind of have to go work in the real world after. So it, it was a decision I made with that in mind of still feeling like I had a chance to get to the big leagues, um, which made it really interesting. It made it a, a different type of decision, I think, than most guys who walk away. What was the then deciding factor to I'm wh- – when did you know? When did you know you had played your last game? Um, I, I would say I, I mentally held on until the end, until the last – probably the last month of the season. Um, the, the little things that started kind of creeping into my head were, you know, you go out on the lake with with your fiancé on the off day and – um, haven't played in four to five weeks and, you know, you're sitting out there, family's got a boat at home, you know, and you're just kind of like looking at the situation that you're in in Tulsa and, and I'm off the roster and I haven't played, like I said, in a month. And you look at what you're doing every day. And it's, it's crazy to think that what you're doing every day, just catching bullpens is preventing you from having a normal summer or just, you know, enjoying the things in life I haven't gotten to enjoy because I've been working every summer. Um, you know, seeing my family living in California, you know, so I, I think it was just and presumably that job isn't it's not like you're it's not like it's setting you up for the rest of your life either. That, exactly. that salary in double A. I've been I've been spending my my savings to survive since I was 18. So, yeah, like you said, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like I was doing something either that was paying the bills. Um, and it was just a perfect storm. I was I was able to walk away pretty peacefully and happy. So. I'm grateful for that. So it was a slow burn. I'd say I, uh, you know, I really made the decision, I would say like in the last month or the playoffs maybe. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, definitely throughout the whole year. It was just kind of slowly inching towards that. If you go back to signing day, what do you, if you could give that 18 year old version of yourself a pep talk, what would that pep talk look like? Oh man. Um, I, I would just, I would say, you know, keep, keep the big picture in mind of, of life, you know, even, even these guys who make it to the big leagues and they get out of baseball at 38 or 40, you still have a whole life to live um, after that. So it's great about our sport. So kind of no matter, no matter what hand is dealt, you still have a whole entire life to live after baseball. Um, and, and I was getting that preached to me by a lot of the people around me, my whole career, I had a lot of really good people around me, but yeah, just, you know, keep the big picture in mind. Don't, don't get too engulfed in the present and what's right in front of you. Um, cause you know, in baseball, there's way more bad days than there are good days with just how our sport works. Um, and you're going to go through some stuff that you'll never go through in the real world in, in minor league baseball, especially. So yeah, just, uh, keeping that, that big scope on, on the rest of your life is what I would say. Like we, we mentioned earlier, you're now going into player representation. What did your, your representation, your agent do for you over the course of your career that you want to replicate? I would say the, the thing that I'm most grateful for is, you know, obviously, like you said earlier, I, I had a lot of hype around me in high school and, and I was this, you know, big prospect. And I, I got the same level of representation as Manny Machado gets from Danny. Um, you know, even when I was off the roster in Tulsa in double A, he's picking up my call in the first ring. He's, you know, he's talking to my fiance every month, um, calling my parents on their birthdays, calling me like the little things of it's an actual relationship. It's not there's a working relationship there, but more than that, you know, it's a, there's a personal relationship, you know, for example, my fiance a couple months ago, uh, asked, asked if he would, if he would ordain, uh, our wedding, if he would do our wedding. So for, for him and our relationship, he was just always there for me. And, and like we've said, I went through some crazy times. So he, uh, yeah, I was great. I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. Um, but yeah, just the treatment of, no matter where I was at in my career, I got the same same representation. I got the same guy. It was incredible. So what I'm hearing is the the Chris Betts player representation guarantee is that if a guy signs with you, you will you will uh, officiate their wedding. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Exactly. Yeah, I I hope to uh, hope to do a, a couple of those. I guess. Top tier service. I got a quick rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. Let it rip. Favorite minor league ballpark. Uh, South Bend. 
least favorite minor league ballpark? Oof. Put me on the spot. Um, either Vermont Lake Monsters or um, – oh, it's in the Texas League. Uh, Midland. Midland, Midland, Texas. I went to uh, I went to college in Odessa, Texas. We played we played quite a few games in that in that Midland Park. What is it? Is it was it the wind? Oh, it was just everything. It just felt like it kind of just sucked the life out of you out there, buddy. I know the feeling. Uh, <laughs> best best pitcher you ever faced? Oh, um, uh, Marquez with the Cubs in 2019 was probably one of the most uncomfortable at bats I've ever had in my life. Best pitcher or best pitcher you ever caught? I'll say Bobby Miller, Gavin Stone, Shane McClanahan, Shane Boz. Last one, everyone gets this. Do you have a worst bus ride story from the minor leagues? I never broke down, believe it or not. I was never on a bus that broke down in eight years. Um, I would say in 2019, we had about three trips where we didn't have AC. And there was nothing you could do to get away from it. It was, I mean, the bus driver dang near had a shirt off. It was out of control. That is, th- those are the two most common themes. I either broke down or the AC went out. And I can't decide which one is worse. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I dodged because we rode on some dodgy buses. I don't know how I did not break down at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, silver lining. Silver lining. Uh, Chris, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You got it. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Chris Betts for stopping by, sharing his story. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Rate and leave your review if you're on Apple Podcasts. And make sure you're subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. And we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.